0: But sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. At first glance, Gideon, Peter, and Paul in our readings today all appeared to me like reluctant heroes of the faith, protesting their unfitness, yet ultimately obeying God's call to service. Maybe they sounded this way to you too, and if so, no surprise, we love a reluctant hero. They densely populate our legends and tales, our histories, our action and superhero flicks. We're primed to key in on this trope. But on closer inspection, I think none of them fit it very well. And in fact, what stands out most is the differences between them, especially between Gideon and the two apostles. So I want to inspect these figures more closely with you to see what we can learn from them about hearing and obeying God's call to us as we continue to reflect on the theme of hearing and proclaiming the good news in this season after Epiphany. Let us first count the ways in which Gideon turns out to be less than heroic. When we first meet him in our story today, he is beating out wheat in a wine press. And this, it turns out, was not a normal thing to do. The Midianites have, at this point in history, prevailed over Israel such that whenever the Israelites try to grow crops, They come up and lay waste to the land. Gideon is therefore furtively attempting to eke out a meager harvest in hiding. There is likely some healthy sarcasm in the angel's initial address to him. The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. (laughs) But we can excuse the hiding. At this point, all of Israel is hiding from Midian. Less excusable is Gideon's retort to the angel. But sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? He should know the answer. In the verses just preceding our passage today, God has sent a prophet to Israel who berates them for not heeding the Lord's voice, but instead turning to the gods of the lands he has given them. Gideon's words to the angel indicate that he, too, has heard this prophet's message, yet despite being part of the problem himself, since his own family, it turns out, are Baal worshipers, his attitude isn't remorseful, but rather petulant and complaining. He then protests his weakness and insignificance. It seems pretty clear that he's overplaying this, since, in fact, we see that his family has land, cattle, servants, and influence in the neighborhood. But it's at this point in our passage that Gideon first does the thing he's best known for doing, asking for a sign. The Lord obliges him, burning up his offering. And finally, Gideon is willing to acknowledge that this is God he's been dickering with, He's terrified and builds an altar on the spot at Ophrah, his family land among the clan of Abiezer, son of Manasseh. Well, there ends our reading for today. And you'd hope that post-altar building, Gideon turns it around. Alas, that's not what we find. Gideon does obey God's command to turn, tear down his family's Baal altar, although even then he only musters the courage to do so at night and with ten servants in tow for protection. His clan are furious with him, but his father persuades them to let him off with the pragmatic suggestion that if Baal is a god, then he can jolly well contend for himself. This episode earns Gideon a new name, Jerubbael, or Let Baal contend against him. And the rest of the Gideon story plays out like a contest between Baal and Yahweh for the souls of Gideon and the rest of Israel. The sorrow of the narrative is that it strongly implies that Baal wins. After tearing down the altar, Gideon finally snaps into action against Midian, marshalling his own Abiezrite clan and then issuing two sets of messengers to draft a substantial fighting force from the other nations of Israel. Even with these behind him, Gideon is doubtful. We all know the Sunday school favorite story about the fleeces and the dew and the threshing floor. My recollection is hearing this story presented as an example about how to discern God's will. But I think now that's not the right way to read it. Gideon already knows God's will at this point. What he's unsure about are his own chances at victory. God has to keep reminding him that it isn't he, Gideon, who will be doing the fighting, but rather the Lord himself. For example, God parallels Gideon's two drafts of men for his army by twice winnowing his troops, leaving Gideon with a laughably small band in comparison with the huge camp of Midianites. Even so, it isn't at all clear that Gideon gets the message. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon, he tells everyone to shout, making sure he gets at least partial credit. Nor after the victory does Gideon show any signs of gratitude or humility at God's great triumph. On the contrary, His immediate concern is to consolidate power for himself by placating some who felt left out of his campaign against Midian and ruthlessly crushing others who failed to support him sufficiently. Ultimately, the Israelites try to set up Gideon as a dynastic king. With his lips, he refuses, declaring that the Lord will rule over him. But his actions speak otherwise. He gathers up a tribute of gold from everyone and fashions a new idol in his hometown of Ophrah, re-centering worship away from the covenantal ark and tabernacle at Shiloh. He names his son Abimelech, which means son of the king. Gideon, in his old age, seems like Denethor in Tolkien's Ring trilogy. He denies that he's the king, but you darn well better treat him like one. And here's the end of the story, according to Judges chapter 8. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites relapsed and prostituted themselves with Baal. They did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hand of all their enemies. That's a tragedy. And insofar as Gideon is a hero at all in the story, he fits not the reluctant hero trope, but rather appears as a tragically flawed figure, overwhelmed at first by fear, and later, even worse, by ambition. Let's now consider this flawed man in comparison with Peter and Paul. The passage we heard today from Luke's gospel about Peter's calling sounds especially weird without the context of the preceding chapter. The crowd is pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, and he just hops into Simon's boat and asks him to put out from shore. And Simon's been out all night fishing. You'd expect a reaction like, excuse me, do I know you? Find some other boat. But from the preceding chapter, we know that Jesus has already been in Simon's hometown of Capernaum for a while, doing miracles, including healing Peter's own mother-in-law. Accordingly, Peter obliges Jesus as he preaches to the crowd. His patience does appear to wear a bit thin when this teacher, as Peter calls him, presumes to give him a pretty absurd-sounding fishing tip, But even so, Peter complies, and the miraculous catch results. As for Paul, our passage today is the beginning of a lengthy address, likely targeted at some members of the Corinthian church swayed by Greek philosophical ideas into denying or downplaying the importance of the bodily resurrection. Paul begins by reminding his brothers and sisters of the gospel they received from him, which he had in turn received, and he recites what commentators think is very likely a sort of early Christian creed. At the end of it, after listing various folks who beheld the risen Christ, he adds his own name. Christ appeared to Paul too, but he notes as to one untimely born, given that he is the least of the apostles, and unfit to be called an apostle, because he persecuted the church of God. Now, like I said before, I'm not sure Peter or Paul actually fit the reluctant hero trope any better upon inspection than Gideon does, Certainly you don't see the stereotypical trudging along on their quest while longing to be back home in the Shire or wherever. Indeed, our passage today says Peter leaves everything to follow Christ, and we know that Paul did too. That isn't to say that they never experienced moments of doubt. Peter is rather famous for them, and even Paul though he tends to stress the certainty and confidence with which he presses on toward his goal, nevertheless mentions in his letter to the Galatians a trip he took up to Jerusalem to consult with church leaders there. He says, I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. This is actually the second Jerusalem trip Paul mentions taking. The first, about three years after his conversion, is probably when he received from Peter and James the early creed from our reading this morning. Paul says that a revelation prompted him to return to Jerusalem years later so as to make sure of his calling. Could it be that this revelation, whatever it was, instilled doubts like Gideon's and this was Paul's way of putting out the fleece? I don't think that's quite right. And in fact, I want to close by highlighting what I take to be four important differences between Gideon's calling and those of Peter and Paul. First, when the Lord comes to Gideon with good news for the Israelite people, he will deliver them from their Midianite oppressors. Gideon's sole thought seems to have been, how is this good news for me? His doubts are mainly about whether it's worth his while, personally, to stick his neck out and do what God wants him to. And once God assures him and reassures him and triple and quadruple assures him that yes, he really does intend to deliver Israel by Gideon's hand and then he does so, Gideon's focus remains on the fact that this happened by his hand and on making sure it pays off for him. He seems to see the good news as individual, not as corporate. Secondly, along similar lines, because Gideon sees the angel's calling as solely a matter of what he personally is supposed to accomplish, he overlooks the fact that the Lord has promised to be with him and to deliver Israel through him. The contrast couldn't be sharper with Paul's acknowledgement that only by the grace of God is he what he is. He labors harder than anyone, he says, and yet it isn't he who labors, but the grace of God that is with him. It isn't surprising to find this stark contrast, however, given a third notable difference between the ways Gideon, Peter, and Paul received their respective callings. Gideon thinks solely in terms of what he personally can or can't accomplish because he doesn't understand the good news as requiring any humility or confession or reform or renewal on his part. Even though, as I noted, Gideon seems aware that a prophet has recently excoriated Israel for idolatry, he fails to connect this idolatry with Israel's present sufferings under Midian. If the Lord is with us, Gideon complains, then where are all his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us? Well, Gideon, might it have something to do with the Baal altar in your front yard? (laughs) Repent. For Peter, in contrast, the miraculous catch immediately prompts both a confession of his own sinfulness and a complete transformation of his life and paul too as we've seen humbly emphasizes his unfitness to be called an apostle in spite of that unfitness however paul also describes in his letter to the galatians the time he opposed peter to his face when peter had drawn back and separated himself from the gentile christians for fear of what his fellow Jews might think. Peter, to his credit, appears to have accepted this rebuke. In spite of his leadership position in the early church, and in spite of having himself earlier on instructed Paul in the faith, he is willing himself to be challenged and corrected, And this is a further respect in which Peter and Paul's understanding of their gospel calling seems to be corporate, not individual. And a fourth respect in which it differs markedly from Gideon's. Now we, like Peter and Paul, are called to proclaim a message of good news for everyone, not just for us personally. And while it is a message about what God will do, not we ourselves, and as such calls us to humility, to confession, and to transformation of life, it is also a message to which we are called together. We instruct one another. We challenge and correct one another. We support one another in our calling. I thank God for that and for you. Amen.